It's truly an honor and a joy for me to be with you this morning. I have a deep admiration for your pastor and pastor's wife, um, not just because he has a Scottish accent, but because I see him as a very godly and apt uh, minister of the gospel. I learn much from every time I, I get to speak with him. So it's, it's a joy for me to be joining you this morning. Um, if you would take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 5, it will be our sermon text this morning. We'll read verses 1 through 6, uh, but focus on verse 6. Read God's word, believing that it's the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the true and living God. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is our text for this morning. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Father, please help us this morning as we seek to divide, understand, and apply your word. Pray that the Holy Spirit would illumine the text for us. Help us to see how we are to put this into practice. Help us to see the good news of the gospel in this single verse. Help us to see how this verse connects to the rest of scripture. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning we focus on the fourth beatitude, uh, verse 6. And if, if, you're, if you're a believer this morning, uh, this, I hope this text is especially relevant and interesting. You ought to lean forward because, well, it's, it's almost New Year's. And what better New Year's text to have than an exhortation to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Isn't that something we all need? Even at the, in, some ways, in some ways, the precipice of a new decade. To have an orienting word for our lives. To be hungry and thirsty after righteousness. But... Perhaps you're not a Christian, or you're a Christian, but you're not that interested in righteousness. Um, this, this text, I hope, is interesting for you as well, because this is the greatest sermon ever written, preached by the greatest preacher to ever preach, and it has the best introduction of any sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher of all greatness. Because we're interested in great things. I, I, uh, I one time watched a preseason basketball game, professional basketball game between the 70, Philadelphia 76ers and the Washington Wizards, and I wouldn't have had much interest in the game because most of the starters don't play, but I was so excited for this game because the greatest basketball player ever was playing. I was so, I, I had marked it on my calendar a year before, this was the day that Michael Jordan was coming to play in his, one of his first preseason games. And so perhaps you're, uh, you're not really excited to hear a sermon this morning, but perhaps to hear the greatest preacher and the greatest sermon, there's perhaps something interesting for here, something grabbing a word for you this morning, I hope. In this sermon uh, on the mount, Jesus is doing several things. First of all, he is in some ways taking on Moses' mantle. Moses brings the summary of the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, down from Mount Sinai. In verse 1, 
seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Jesus is speaking from the mountain. And much of his sermon is a, a summary, uh, really a deepening and a widening of the moral law of, the, of God, uh, of the Ten Commandments. What Moses gave, Jesus is clarifying, deepening, and widening in many ways. He's teaching us the, the true ethics of the Christian religion, of, of God's kingdom. And the other thing he's doing is he's giving a kingdom manifesto. He's, he's proclaiming from the mountain what the new Israel, the new community, God's people um, ought to be. That's what most of this Sermon on the Mount is. But also, another thing he's doing is he's preaching the gospel. And it's, in some ways, what we understand as the gospel can be rather uh, subtle or hidden in the Sermon on the Mount, but not in this verse. Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, in all of the New Testament, in a single verse, it's hard to find where, where the gospel is more clearly proclaimed. So that's, that's my goal for this morning, is to show you how this preaches the gospel. And we're going to do it by breaking the, the, the verse up into three, it's three main parts. What does it mean to hunger and thirst? What does Jesus mean by speaking of hungering and thirsting? And what does he mean by righteousness? What is righteousness? And thirdly, satisfaction. Uh, what does that mean? How does Jesus uh, promise satisfaction? What way uh, can those who hunger and thirst after righteousness be satisfied? That's, that's our goal, to see the gospel proclaimed through this text. But first, what it means to hunger and thirst. And the gospel, the good news of the Christian religion is found in those words. It's gospel that this verse does not say, blessed are the righteous. It's good news that this verse does not say, blessed are those who do and think and act rightly. Those are the ones who will be happy in the end. Those who get their stuff together. That's not what it says. And that's, that's a blessed and happy thing for you this morning and for me. Uh, it's blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Those are those who are, well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But it, it's not saying there's blessedness and happiness as a prerequisite for the kingdom. The prerequisite of the blessed life is not to have your things in order. Not to live, be living a, a, a righteous life to get into the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, uh, the prerequisite, the doorway, is not to initially be righteous, but to be hungering and thirsting for it. This is the scandal of the Christian religion. This is the scandal against the Pharisees that the, uh, the, the man on the cross next to Jesus gets into the kingdom, and they don't. This is the scandal. That's the good news. It's the gospel, and it's here very much in the first words of our text. But certainly Jesus' original hearers uh, have a better understanding of what it means to really hunger and really thirst. Um, I've never experienced famine. We had some drought growing up, but we still always had water. Uh, the grass died, that was about it, you know, kind of thing. Uh, and, and uh, of course, famine and drought for, throughout most of human history have been uh, dual terrors, uh, a terrible way to die that killed millions upon untold millions, perhaps, right? And yet, um, my greatest experience in some ways of hunger comes at about 11 o'clock every day. Right about lunchtime, uh, or perhaps of thirst. You know, on Sunday afternoon after my nap, I often wake up thirsty. And uh, as, as in the, even in that limited experience of hunger and thirst, we all have in one way or another, I think we can understand what Jesus is saying. There's something intrinsic, uh, to a common human experience that every person knows what it is to hunger and thirst. Jesus is the perfect teacher, using the perfect imagery, the perfect understanding. Um, because the thing about 11 o'clock at work and trying to work at my desk is that uh, as the Empty stomach starts to churn. Whether consciously or unconsciously, I begin to uh, forage. I begin to uh, hunt and gather around the office for something to eat. I, I'm distracted from my work. Or even I, I, I have friends that somehow get heat stroke when they work out in the yard in the summertime. 
I don't understand that because as soon as I begin to get thirsty, I stop the yard work and I go get something to drink. There's, there's something about hungering and thirsting that's preoccupying, that's distracting, that, that changes our trajectory and focuses us on uh, something we need. That's what Jesus is getting at, I think, in the most clear and obvious of ways. To hunger and thirst after something is to be preoccupied with it, distracted by it, focused upon it. So much so that it can even become painful, it can even become dangerous and essential, essential to living. And so the question arises very, very quickly, um, what am I spiritually, because these Beatitudes, Jesus' sermon is largely spiritual, what am I truly or spiritually in my soul hungering and thirsting after? What am I preoccupied by? What are the concerns, the questions, the desires, the, uh, the hungers that, that nag what are the things that drive you? What are the things that you long for? That if you don't get, you can easily become hangry because of. What are those things that keep you up at night as you lay on your pillow trying to sleep? What do you look at on the internet? What are those things our souls? As we look into our phones or our screens, those are always, we say, mirrors to our soul. We know what we desire based upon what we spend time looking at and gazing upon with our eyes. What are those things we long for, that we hunger and thirst after? What are you hungering and thirsting for? And perhaps it's things, or perhaps it's um, respect. You want honor, so you work hard, and you wouldn't mind being noticed for your hard work. And perhaps when you're not noticed for your hard work, you get a little miffed. Or perhaps when you're passed over, you become a little angry because disrespect has come to you in one way or another. Perhaps um, you long for your hunger and thirst for control. You are a good planner, perhaps. But when things don't go according to plan, you're easily angered. And that anger, your heart is revealed for what you're hungering and thirsting after. Perhaps you're hungering and thirsting after comfort. Perhaps it's the vacation you can't stop thinking about. Or even just the opportunity to watch TV at night that you look forward to all day long. What is that thing that you find yourself preoccupied by, bring, uh, coming back to? If I had to say there's one thing that Americans are hungering and thirsting after, perhaps the, the largest umbrella you could put it under would be happiness. Right? Um, the pursuit of happiness is in our very declaration of independence. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the greatest preacher of the last century, of course, summarizes it so well. He says, Now the whole world is seeking for happiness. There is no question about that. Everybody wants to be happy. That is the great motive behind every act and ambition, behind all work and all striving and effort. Everything is designed for happiness. But he says, The great tragedy of the world is that though it gives itself to seek for happiness... It never seems to be able to find it. The present state of the world reminds us of that very forcibly. What is the matter? I think the answer is that we have never understood this text as we should have done. What does it mean? Let me put it negatively like this. We are not to hunger and thirst after blessedness. We are not to hunger and thirst after happiness. But that is what most people are doing. We put happiness and blessedness as the one thing that we desire, and thus we always miss it. It always eludes us. And according to the scriptures, happiness is never something that should be sought directly. It is always something that results from seeking something, or I will say, someone else. We ought to pause, even as we, before we move to righteousness, to, to imagine... What if we used all our energy and time that we spend on concerns... Or our concern for respect, comfort, control, possessions, etc. 
and we used all that on righteousness? What if we hungered for righteousness, whatever that means we're about to discuss, the way we hungered for our daily bread, we're preoccupied by our thirst. But first, what is righteousness? So we know in some ways what it means to hunger and thirst. We know what Jesus is getting at, intense desire. But what does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? What is righteousness? Uh, because the way we most often use righteousness uh, in everyday language is, of course, negatively. Um, nobody wants to be righteous because righteous sounds a lot like being self-righteous. And uh, we know self-righteous people, those judgmental, religious, bigoted people. We don't want to be righteous like that. And yet, dikaiosune, uh, the Greek word behind righteousness in our text, is, is, does not carry those negative connotations in Jesus' time. And and not generally in the church either, but the, the Greek word, dikaiosune, for righteousness, which Jesus means here, is used in essentially three ways, or has three senses we can speak of in which it, uh, the full meaning lies. John Stott points them out as judicial righteousness, moral righteousness, and social righteousness. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary, helpfully uh, describes those as um, there are right relationship to God, judicial, uh, right relationship with others, moral, and right relationships in the world or social righteousnesses, stop, put it. But first, judicial righteousness, we know as our right standing before God. And this, we may say, I think, is the, is the primary meaning. It's what Paul most often means when he uses the word dikaiosune. It's often translated in the Testament as justification. So that we could read this passage very, in some ways, meaningfully to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justification, for they shall be satisfied. And we know what that word means from so much of the rest of the New Testament. It's, it's, it's the word that describes our standing before God, our relationship to him, that there is really, uh, there's no gray area. There's a, a right and a wrong relationship to God. Because God is judge. That's what we call this judicial righteousness. Where do we stand before the judge? And before a judge, you are either innocent or righteous, or you are condemned, guilty. The Bible explains this again and again. Is that we are either dead in our trespasses and sins or made alive to God. We are either enemies of God, traitors who commit cosmic treason, or we are made sons. This judicial righteousness, our, our standing in, of justification before God is one of the primary meanings here. And, it, and it's one of the meanings that um, hits us in the most essential and deepest ways, in our deepest beginnings. It's, it's what's lost in the Garden of Eden, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, they move from a righteous estate to a sinful estate. They move from righteousness to condemnation. They are separated from God, thrown out of the garden. The great divorce caused by their sin, uh, the right relationship with God was lost. See, those who are blessed, every member of Christ's kingdom is one who hungers and thirsts for this kind of righteousness, for a right relationship with God. And they hunger and thirst for it because they know the truth about themselves, that they know themselves to be sinners, they know themselves to be lost, they know themselves to be estranged from God. They can sing, guilty, vile, and helpless we. They know that about themselves, and so they hunger for righteousness. Indeed, in so many ways, this builds upon the previous Beatitudes. Uh, and at, at home, at IPC, I'm doing a a series. This is my fourth sermon, fourth beatitude, as I've been walking through. And, and something that we ought to see is the connection between these beatitudes, the kind of ladder that they build upon one another as we walk through. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, for most of my life, I thought poor in spirit meant uh, poorly spirited. They were dullards. 
Blessed are the dullards. And of course, it's not what it means. What it means is, blessed are those who are spiritually poor. Or blessed are those who are, know themselves to be spiritually impoverished. Know that their, their spiritual bank account is on zero. When they cash spiritual checks, they get bounced. There's nothing in their hands they bring to God. Blessed are those people because that's the very entryway into the kingdom of heaven. They, theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. That's what the text says. That's, that's the starting point of all blessedness. To know your poverty, right? Spirit. And the second is like it. To, to not only know of your poverty of spirit, but to know beyond that that you not only have zero in the bank account, but you're actually in debt. Uh, that you're not only bringing to God nothing in your hands, but that you actually have a lot of baggage. And it's a guilty conscience, and it's a guilty soul, and it's a whole list of, of sins you bring that need to be atoned for. And there's a mourning for that. And for those people who are mourning for their sin, who are mourning for their debt and guilt before God, there's comfort. That's the, the blessing of the gospel. And the fourth, or the third beatitude, blessed are the meek. Well, if, if people understand that they're not only impoverished, but are mournful for their debt before God, certainly they're humble before God, and that humility works out into meekness before everyone else. Before a watching world, there are those who are meek. This is, it comes back again and again to this, this fundamental understanding of who are the blessed ones, who are those who are in Christ's kingdom. Every citizen of his kingdom has a hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God. This is something about each of the Beatitudes. Each of these lines are not only a starting point, they're not only the gate by which entry to the kingdom comes, they are also the characteristics of the citizens. They know themselves to be poor, and they are mourning for it, and they are meek for it, and they continue, beginning and ending, to pursue right relationship with God. Dikaiosune, justification, Righteousness. But that, that's not the only meaning. There's a second meaning to dikaiosune in the New Testament, and I think Jesus includes it here. It's also meant here. It's a moral righteousness, or a righteousness before others, right relationship with others. And that progressive reality in the life of every Christian, whereby they gain conformity in their lives to the law of God. Every Christian, every true blessed one, hungers and thirsts to live a holy life. To be obedient to the will of God, keeping the moral law. They, they are, in fact, consumed with a passion. They are distracted by it. It is a, an ongoing desire to know and to be conformed to the mind of God. They long to live in integrity and love and forgiveness and peace and joy with their spouses and with their children and with their in-laws and with their boss and with their employer. With everybody they interact with, they, they want to live a moral, upright, and godly life. A salt and light kind of life. And they pursue this with the same tenacity that we do in finding food and water. And I, I'm always wondering what's for dinner. In some ways, it doesn't matter what time of day it is. I'm wondering, preoccupied, distracted by this, what's, what's the next meal going to be like? Uh, I'd be interested someday to study my text messages to my wife and how often I've asked, you know, what, what, are we, what are we thinking we're having for dinner? I'm sure it'd be common enough. But what if... What if that was my prayer? What if I'd be embarrassed, certainly at the end of life, if I'd ask my wife more what's for dinner than I asked the Lord uh, to, made me, to make me holy? If I, was so, if, I was, if, I, if I used the same effort, energy, and preoccupation with planning for a way to love my wife and to love my children and to serve my employer and to be a good citizen and to be a brother in Christ in the church, um, well, then I'd be blessed. There'd be a blessedness that would come, a true happiness, an eternal happiness that would follow. But finally, so there's this judicial righteousness. There's this moral, uh, progressive, we might call it a sanctification righteousness. There's also a thirdly, a, a social righteousness that every true believer, every blessed one, 
hungers and thirsts after. It's what Stott calls social righteousness. This is that concern all Christians should have for justice in the world. It's something we ought to be continually praying for. This is the longing of every believer, uh, that every believer should have for equity in our courts and peace in our streets and integrity in our governing leaders. It's the concern for the poor and for the destitute, those ravaged by a world engulfed in sin. Christians are concerned about suffering because our Lord is concerned about suffering. He has compassion. We ought to be compassionate. There's a longing that we find in so many of the Psalms, uh, so many of the prophets speak about, they they tell of the good king that will come to set all the wrong things right uh, at IPC. Uh, It's become my favorite Christmas carol now to sing Psalm 72. Uh, I commend it to your congregation. It's one of my very, very favorites. Uh, And we sing at Christmas time because it's telling of the king who will come and will have compassion on the poor. He'll set the, the wrongs right. It says this, It says, he'll show the poor his sympathy and save the needy by his might. From fraud and force, he'll set them free. Their blood is precious in his sight. And of course, we we all have a desire for the righteous king or for the righteous president. We all have some kind of political desire to see the utopian society, what the world is supposed to be, come to fruition. But these longings for righteousness, where can they be fulfilled? How does one get right with God? How does one actually become morally righteous? And how might the world ever be what we long for it to be? Could there be any satisfaction for these things? What does Jesus mean when he promises they shall be satisfied? Because the song of the human condition, and all of our great poets, including the Rolling Stones, of course, is that I can't get no satisfaction. And I try, and I try, and I try, but I can't get no Satisfaction, Or perhaps it's the, it's the words of Shakespeare through Macbeth. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets its hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Or perhaps it's the writer of Ecclesiastes Repeating again and again, vanity of vanities, all is but vanity. Or perhaps it's Tom Brady on 60 Minutes. I know you've seen the interview or heard the sermon illustration before. But after winning three, M- three Super Bowls and three Super Bowl MVPs and marrying a supermodel and being the Stetson man, he says there's got to be more than life than this. Um, the people on top, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have to press this in too far, I don't think. The people on top, the people on top of the mountain always tell us there's nothing there. Uh, the people that have all the power, possessions, and prestige that we ever could long for, all the righteousness we could ever seek to, to clothe ourselves with in worldly terms, all the things we hungering and thirsting for, do not give satisfaction. They can't get no satisfaction. But here's Jesus promising satisfaction to those hungering and thirsting for righteousness. How can he do that? How might the hungry and thirsty for righteousness be satisfied. Because let me make this clear. Hear me. Um, there is no way that you can get yourself right with God. There is no way that you can make yourself morally perfect, morally conformed to the law of God. And there's no way that you can bring in the world you know it, uh, uh, that ought to be, the utopian society. We are utterly hopeless on our own. This is, this is what the, the, the beginning of the Beatitudes teaches us. We ought to be, know ourselves to be poor and mourning and meek. And hungering, because there is one who satisfies. The key to Jesus' promise here, and those 
who are truly hungry will always find it, is that they learn righteousness is not a thing, uh, but it's a person. A person in whom we may find these things. A person who will supply the righteousness, the satisfaction that so eludes the world. The gospel promise in this beatitude is not that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will eventually find it if they look hard enough for it. It's not that they, will, like they can eventually earn it if they work hard enough. Uh, it's a gospel promise that they'll be satisfied. That is that they will be provided for. It will be supplied and given. And the message of the New Testament in so many ways is that Jesus is our righteousness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul explains that Jesus has become to us our dikaiosune, our righteousness, redemption, and sanctification. Indeed, this is what Jesus himself says in John chapter 6. This is that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Why will they never hunger and thirst? Because they are satisfied, because they have found righteousness. What does Jesus say to the woman at the well in John 4? If you knew who was asking you for water, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water welling up to eternal life, those who would never be thirsty again. See, judicial righteousness with God, Jesus supplies. This is the very work of the whole work of the cross, right? This is, this is Christianity 101, what it is to be justified with God, to be switching places as we read today, 2 Corinthians 5 to 1. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness by being switching places with Christ. He taking on our guilt. He taking on our poverty. He taking on our debt. We getting his perfect lived life, the fulfillment of all the law perfectly being raised in him. Those who believe in him, who are united to him by faith, have, are fulfilled by, satisfied with judicial righteousness. Moreover, as they are satisfied by judicial righteousness, they're, they're adopted into his family, we might say, and slowly begin to grow into the family characteristics. That is, that we may begin to be righteous before others, or morally righteous. Jesus explains in John 15 that he is the true vine. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But if we are connected to the vine, we start to bear good fruit good works in our lives. Moral righteousness flows from an essential connection to a union with or in Christ. He provides very much not only our justification, but our sanctification, our moral righteousness. And of course, ultimately, someday in the grandest way, a social righteousness. The Psalms and the prophets of the just king are about him. That's Jesus at the end of Revelation who does say and will say, Behold, I make all things new. We stand, of course, in the time in between. He has begun his work in his first coming, and he will finish it in his second. He will bring satisfaction for those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, judicial, moral, and social. In closing, we need to point out briefly that most of us have an appetite problem. Perhaps we hunger and thirst for everything else but righteousness. So how does one develop a hunger and thirst after righteousness? How does one develop an appetite for the things of God? And I have three brief suggestions. This is not another sermon, I promise. Hold on, don't worry. The first thing is that you have to know the Beatitudes. Go back to the, the, the entryway. Go back to the, the characteristics of the blessed ones. And begin, start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. And to know that those who are poor in spirit, to know that you have nothing to bring before God. That you ought to mourn for your debt. To be meek before him and all others. That's the blessed road, to continue on in this most basic way, to know the gospel and preach it to yourself. Know the Beatitudes, a very practical way to start. So the second thing is to seek out the ordinary means. 
what I mean by that is you come to church. Be here next week when Pastor Alex is back and he, he feeds you the sacrament. He, he takes away your hunger and thirst, your spiritual hunger and thirst, by the symbols of spiritual hunger and thirst quenching the body and blood of Christ. Be there for that. And be among his people. And read your Bibles and pray. Make yourself, avail yourself of the ordinary means to develop hunger. Because I had no appetite for coffee growing up until I started drinking it regularly. And now I can't function. It is part of the routine. I have a, this is maybe beyond an appetite. I have a very hunger and thirsting problem for coffee in the morning. Right? It's got, I can't function without it. Your Bible reading will become that, and your prayer will become that. If you build it into your routine, you will develop an appetite for it by obeying. Know the Beatitudes. Seek out the ordinary means. Number three, seek out others starving for righteousness. And perhaps this is one of the most basic things you can do, to have a, have a friendship. Get together with a brother or, or a sister and burn. Someone else that burns for the holiness of God, uh, who, who, who's passionate, who also is hungry and thirsting after righteousness. And before you know it, your appetite will begin to burn as well. You will grow through that. Two final thoughts. Uh, some of you are only here to dabble. Uh, some of you are, are a little bit hungry. You might be like the prodigal son who is happy to continue to, to live on the slop. Hungry, no doubt. He's eating the pig's food and yet not starving, not ready to turn home to your father. So the call will be to, for you to repent. Stop feeding upon corn husks. Stop feeding upon the fake food. Return to the real food that brings satisfaction for eternity, to go home. And the second, my final thought, is that you know, the, the most common place I hear about hungering and thirsting, uh, people being, is my own children. I have three children, one, three, and five. And the three and five-year-old, I marvel every day at how they're never hungry at mealtime, but always hungry and thirsty at bedtime. And um, I, I'm not a pushover of a parent. Uh, I don't think so, anyways. But I find myself unable to deny them when they request from their Father food and drink, how much more our Heavenly Father, who is perfect, compassionate, who longs for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that He will supply in our time of hunger and thirsting. There's blessed promises here. There's gospel here. Satisfaction for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness personified our Lord Jesus. This is, this is, this is the, of all the great Christians in the Bible, this is, this is what they hunger and thirst after. Paul says it in Philippians 3, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Or David, as we read in Psalm Psalm 42 and other places, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after thee, O God. Jesus says, come to me. He who comes shall never hunger. He who believes shall never thirst. Our Father in heaven, I pray that we would be those with a holy hunger, a blessed hunger and thirst after righteousness. Make us like Paul and make us like David Make us like your son whose very food is to do the will of him who sent him. We ask for your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.